all of my self-worth was wrapped up in my achievements. Um, and it's no surprise that, you know, I, I made a career out of a sport where you get feedback about yourself in the form of numbers. So if I got an eight, they thought I was good. If I got a nine, they thought I was great. And if I got a 10, they thought I was perfect. And, you know, even during training sessions, I would get this feedback that was, you know, very esteeming, you know, like that was beautiful, but it was all about like what I was doing, not who I was being. We're very lucky to have Matthew Mitchum on today's episode. Matt is a world-class athlete with a huge list of achievements as a diver, performing artist, author, and pride ambassador. He won a gold medal in the 2008 Olympics in diving off the 10-meter platform, having received the highest single dive score in Olympic history. As a child, he represented Australia in trampolining, He published an autobiography called Twists and Turns, which he then turned into a cabaret. He was the runner-up on Dancing with the Stars in 2015. I really enjoyed this chat with Matt. I'm always interested to find out what motivates elite sports people, and Matt was very candid about the harmful conditioning which drove him to want to be the best in the world. We chat about how he used crystal meth to self-medicate the sense of alienation he felt in his, in his early teen years, his feelings of depression, and uh, how he managed it to use um, or to offset against his lack of self-esteem. It seems extraordinary knowing what Matt was going through mentally, plus what he was subjecting his body to, that he was able to compete and win at an Olympic level. We talked about how the cycle of shame and addiction perpetuates itself and how many times he tried to stop using. Chatting to Matt, it became clear that he's someone who has already put a hell of a lot of work into recovery with both his mental health and his sobriety. But he admits that like most of us, he remains on the lifelong journey to acceptance and peace. He encapsulates the essence of heart on my sleeve because his desire to share his story with the intent to be of service to others is what we are all about. He talks about how the vulnerability and rawness of his book and cabaret connects with people in a way that makes them feel like they can be open with him and share the things that they might otherwise feel ashamed of. There are many nuggets of wisdom dropped all throughout this episode, um, but we've had a laugh and uh, we've also had some incredibly real and, and raw moments. There are mild trigger warnings around drug use, but as always, go slow, go strong, one day at a time, we're all on the journey. I'm very grateful you've given us a bit of your time to share your experience today. Yeah, no worries. Do you think sport has been something that has been a grounding anchor for you when the seas have been rough? Um, So I guess there were two big periods of my life where um, I was 
suffering from depression. One of them was as a teenager, uh, you know, which is completely understandable, you know, the hormonal shitstorm that um, adolescence is. (laughs) Yeah. So there was a period from about 14 to 18 where, um, you know, I was suffering from this pretty, like, you know, this extended period of depression. Um, And in one way, um, sport was, well, sport was in one way quite a, a source of angst for me because, um, you know, like I uh, was discovering, well, I was getting comfortable with my sexuality, but, you know, having um, started diving in um, a, 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 like a junior program of the national diving program, um, I, I started right from the age of 11, like, you know, training in the National Training Centre. And so I was training with these people for six hours a day, six days a week, you know, from the age of 11. And, you know, by the time I was getting to that stage where it's like, you know, you, you start telling people, I'd be training with these people for years. And so I felt quite stuck in, you know, because I didn't want to admit that I'd been sort of, in my mind, deceiving these people who I was supposed to be so close with um, for years. And um, so I felt quite stuck there. And that consequently, you know, like I was holding a lot back and I guess people, I mean, the people knew that I was, it was quite obvious that I was different in a very flamboyant way. Um, but, you know, because I wasn't being very open, um, people didn't know how to navigate the obstacles. And so I ended up feeling very isolated within my training environment um, and then very alienated. And, um, and you know, also, um, you know, my coach uh, at the time, um, and this was a cultural difference, but um, his coaching style was kind of, you know, corrections only. And, um, you know, starting to, I mean, hearing everything through this, this filter of, um, of low self-worth and low self-esteem, hearing nothing but corrections for hours and hours on end, um, it just started to feel like criticism. Um, and so, you know, I was actually really quite, um, diving was a, a source of, um, of misery for me for, uh, throughout my teenage years. But, um, I saw diving as my ticket to being special. And mm. so, um, I basically to keep me going, I ended up just training on autopilot. So I would get to the pool, I would do my dives as you know, quickly as possible and get out as soon as I could. Um, and so like I was always, you know, and, and I was, I was the, 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 the next best after the Olympians. Like I, I missed out on making the Athens team by one place in all four events. Um, and so, you know, as a 16 year old, I was, you know, the, the next best. Um, but I, and I never quite cracked that, um, you know, that the, the Olympians, like being up with the Olympians, um, as a teenager. Um, and I, I put that down a lot to, you know, just not being, I mean, one, there was, I was young, um, but two, you know, I noticed later on in my career when I was in this wonderfully inclusive training environment, um, when I moved cities, I was able to be present in my training sessions for the first time in years. And that, that being present enabled me to be very, um, analytical of myself and my diving and, um, and enabled me to make very, very fine adjustments to my technique uh, all the way up to Beijing, which I believe was, you know, the catalyst for me to actually win the Olympic Games. 
Um, so, you know, diving in one way, you know, yes, it has been a source of angst. And um, in another way, it's also been, you know, I guess the purpose for me to have to have something like it's um, it, it's given me a, a goal and, and, and direction. And maybe if I didn't have sport in my teenage years, I might not be here because, you know, even throughout my teenage years, even though I had diving, I was still, you know, the escapism was very strong with me. Like I was uh, acting out in self-harming behaviors, uh, you know, which ended up in hospitalizations. I was acting out in um, binge drinking um, and that was just escalating. Um, and I was, you know, I was starting to take drugs um, before I uh, ended up retiring at 18 um, with no intention of returning to the sport. And I was just lucky that, you know, after a year off and, you know, just getting comfortable with myself and my identity um, and promising that I would never sort of be in the closet again, like I was going to be 100% upfront and honest with everyone I met. And so I just got really comfortable with myself and that's when I got given the opportunity to train in another city and, uh, and, I, and I took it. And that was only 15 months before Beijing which, um, you know, was not ideal timing, having had a year off doing very, very unhealthy things with my body. Um, but, you know, being happy in that training environment was, it made all the difference. Wow. Uh, it's it's incredible to to know how much being comfortable in yourself plays out in every domain of your life. You said that you were feeling almost deceptive toward other people around you, do you think that it was the deception of your sexual preference, your hiding of your mental health or your disinterest to the sport, which you've explained why, that you felt most deceptive about? Um, it definitely would have been my own, like, identity. Um, that was what made me feel very alienated within the training environment, Um uh, yeah, I just, I couldn't, you know, Kiki, I couldn't powwow with everybody. I couldn't be, you know, old chummy old buddy um, with, you know, not bringing my actual authentic self to the party. Um, yeah, it's, you know, and then, you know, what, you know, teenage boys can be like as well. Um, but, you know, that's not really an excuse because I also, you know, I wasn't that chummy with the, the girls either. So, um, you know, it's really like it all came from me. Like I take full responsibility that it was my own um, reluctance to, um, you know, to open up that actually was what caused the, you know, the breakdown in, in communication, the breakdown of relationship. Um, Do you think uh, you had underlying mental health issues outside of teenage hormones uh, or do you think it was the sexual identity part that was that was the cause of it? Um, I definitely don't think it was the sexual identity that was the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was an unfortunate, uh, you know, I guess coincidence. Um, I know that I have a genetic predisposition to mental ill health. Um, I grew up in a household where... Uh, I was the only child of a single parent who had a lot of her own issues, uh, physical and mental. Uh, she spent a lot of time in bed uh, with chronic fatigue, with depression, with alcoholism. And, you know, like it was later 
diagnosed, like she was diagnosed as an adult um, having Asperger's as well, which, you know, kind of explained a lot of her behaviours throughout my mm. childhood, um, just kind of her default reaction to everything was rage and, um, and yet, you know, she, she was an alcoholic as well. Um, that must have been super so, confusing for you as a kid. Well, uh, see, the thing is, like, I, I, for some reason, like, at about the age of eight, I remember having this very, very profound thought that I wanted to be the best in the world at something, and I had no idea what it was going to be. I was totally not sporty, um, like, woefully sort of <laughs> not sporty. <laughs> uh, you know, lunch, lunch times when you go down to the Oval and they'd be picking off for teams for soccer or cricket or football, uh, I was always last to be picked. Yeah, you know, like, like I'm even, out. Like, well, I wanted to be part of it, but like, you know, all the girls right. would get picked before I would, you know, like that's how sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not an asset I was on the sporting field. Um, but, I, but I, you know, I remember having this thought that if I am the best in the world at something, then, you know, mom's going to love me and, and, and everybody else is going to love me. And, you know, I, I guess it probably came from a place of neglect. Um, it would have, you know, come from a place of, you know, when I did something really good, I would have gotten this, this positive reinforcement and this validation that felt really good. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted, like I was cra- I craved it um, because, you know, it just wasn't something that I got very much of as a child. And so, you know, logically as an eight-year-old, you go, well, if I get this, for doing something good, then if I'm the best at something, then I'm going to get all the love. Yeah, right. And Simple maths. Yeah, of course. And so, um, but there was there was anxiety all through my childhood um, that was very, very obvious um, and, and even just existential anxiety. But, you know, um, there's anxiety that even, you know, that lingers even today, like as far as, you know, finances um, and, and security um, you know, never growing up in a home that was owned by my parent. And so there was a lot of moving around and, um, and, you know, like this, this financial anxiety plays out in, you know, in my marriage a lot and causes me a lot of issues because a lot of it is, um, not based in reality. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's, there's still lingering trauma from my childhood, um, that, you know, I do still need to address. Um, but you know, like one, Mental illness at a time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mate, I can, I can totally relate to that. Every time I walk out of a doctor's office or not even like a naturopath's office and I'm doing the intake form, I leave there being like, holy shit, man, they must be thinking I'm a basket case. Like when they leave, the receptionists are like, that guy's got fucking no chance. Um, so I definitely understand what you mean around one thing at a time. Uh, do you, have you been able to, this is a big question, but have you been able to sort of make peace and reconcile as an adult um, more of your mother's narrative and being able to let that go and love her for her background? Um, I've definitely been able to uh, accept yeah. um, her um, because, you know, I mean, one, she's got a diagnosis and so that explains a lot of things and that also gives me a framework with which to interact with her. Um, it does leave me a bit frustrated sometimes um, when, you know, like she accepts her own limitations, which, you know, in one way is a self-preservation mechanism, but in another way 
um, I feel like having a diagnosis then um, it can be used as an excuse to not put in any effort to grow or change or work on anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I used to think that I had completely accepted it. Um, uh, but then, you know, just I guess recently uh, it's kind of been pointed out to me that, um, uh, that you know, I also need to work on my own, like I, because I've still got, you know, the way I interact with her is still very much like um, this, you know, this scared little boy in that I, am still incapable of sort of setting boundaries um, or, you know, or doing anything like that because I'm afraid of her volatility. Um, And so there is still work that I need to do on myself um, to, to work on um, how I interact with her. And, and, you know, I don't have to just accept something, um, you know, I can still put in, like, I, I don't have to accept something to the detriment of myself. Correct. Yeah, we always talk about can you accept the person and, and not the behavior it, and that distinguishing those two things is super duper important because you can have compassion for someone in their story and there might be things in your mother's story that relate to trauma that has brought her to this point other than genetics and diagnosis um, that you've mentioned. But it doesn't mean that it's okay for her to potentially using your words, neglect your needs as a child and that nurturance, et cetera. And I think making peace with that and separating those two things is, is obviously been healing for you and boundaries in your own relationship, like your marriage. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I'm really great at the theory. Um, the <laughs> practice I often, uh, the execution of that, I often fall down. Um, but it is something that takes practice and like really it needs to be really consciously at the forefront of your mind um, in order to to practice it properly. Um, because you know, if it's it's if it's behaviour that I've never practiced, um, you know, it's not going to come naturally. And so, if I'm not actually conscious of it when I am put in that situation, my reaction is going to be you know habitual. It's going to be my instinctive reaction that I've all, the way I've always reacted and behaved, unless it is at the forefront of my mind. Yeah. And, and I can sort of put that stop there, that pause there so that I can respond in the way I want to rather than react in the way I always have. Is there anything uh, that you do that helps give you that window, that, that new cognition window? I want to plant a new plastic, plastic path here. Um, I used to be much better at it. Um, I learned it uh, early on in my recovery from drugs and alcohol um, and that was because I guess all of my time and energy and effort was around reflection and growth and, and my recovery. Like I was, you know, that was my full-time job was um, recovering from, you know, addiction to drugs and alcohol. And so um, there was a lot of time and energy invested in, um, in, in, you know, in, in thinking and pausing and doing all that. Um, and then in the last few years of my recovery, I've gotten a bit lazy with that stuff, um, you know. I guess because it has been, it's it's easy. It's very easy for me to stay away from drugs and alcohol. Like it's not even something I think about on a daily basis because I'm, you know, nearly five years clean and sober now. Um, but having, but the the the, um, the problem with that is that you can get complacent, and so you yeah. stop putting in as much time and effort and energy and um, an investment into that that personal development, uh, and so that 
sort of stagnates. And that's one of the things that has definitely, uh, that I've noticed is that I don't have that pause. And because that plays out in my current relationships as well. Um, Mm. And so it's something that I've newly started investing in again, um, trying to invest in um, how to not be so reactive myself. Um, Yeah. Particularly, my husband is very triggering. <laughs> he just he just walked past. <laughs> I had a weird question, which is, you mentioned, you know, you, you, when you're eight years old, you wanted to be the best in the world at something, and you got there. Like a lot of people sometimes think that, and you know, nothing happens. But you ended up winning a gold Olympic medal, uh, literally the single best person in a category on the planet, was it worth it? And did it give you what you thought it would? Yeah. Funny you say that. Um, I, uh, remember feeling relief when I stepped onto the podium to uh, so much relief that sort of everything I'd been through up to that moment had been worth it. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's amazing what an Olympic gold medal can do like it's you know all of a sudden it makes you popular and funny and handsome and you know like um it just has these magical properties but um <laughs> but i i guess um you know for some reason i decided to look on the world rankings um after i got back from the olympics and i discovered that i was actually number two in the world because uh, world rankings are based on um uh, total uh number of points throughout the year and a Chinese diver had won more events earlier in the year than I had, and so had accrued more total points. And so I was still not the best in the world. Like in uh, it's what a twisted, it's warped thinking. But um, you know, and I, I guess that was potentially. I mean, like it, it did, um, it did sort of motivate me to to set a new goal to be the best in the world. And I did get that in 2010. I, I, I got my number one world ranking in 2010. But, you know, I think it had already started a, a spiral, uh, which I did not really expect. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, it started to feel like, um, you know, pe- that I didn't really have any value, that people only cared about the medal and that I was just wearing the medal. But it was just, it was the medal that people were actually interested in. And so I had no inherent value. And so, you know, that self-esteem stuff started coming back. And that, um, you know, that was the, I guess that was a lot of the, the underlying stuff through my teenage years. But because I had, you know, done this massive geographical and, started diving again in this environment that was very accepting and I was very happy diving and I had this goal that I was working towards and I was being very successful. I guess, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but like, I just thought, you know, things were better and I was better. And, um, and I, I didn't really, so I never actually addressed any of the underlying causes of my depression as a teenager. Um, and so after the Olympics, I guess that self-esteem stuff started coming back with a, a bit of a vengeance and I, I felt more ashamed than ever about the way I was feeling because I was, you know, an Olympic champion and, you know, I had all this stuff going for me and, um, and I guess, you know, but I felt like my feelings were unjustified basically. 
And, you know, I think we all know that feeling bad about feeling bad doesn't make you feel less bad. It mm-hmm. makes you feel more bad. Um, and, you know, the shame really prevented me from reaching out, but I was desperate to change the way I felt. And um, so I thought I would just handle it, you know, the way I used to. And, and I just went back to the same crutch that I'd used as a teenager to change the way I felt. And that was hard drugs, particularly crystal meth. Um, and so, and, you know, obviously that's more shameful than everything. Um, and yeah, I, um, and like, I wasn't using it for performance enhancement or anything like that. I was just using it to get through my day to day sort of life, like to shut my brain off. Um, and you know, like I had to, I had to detox before every competition because, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't using it to, for performance enhancement. And, you know, I knew that I would get drug tested at competitions. And so I would detox before every competition. And, um, that process was so horrific that, um, every time I would do it, I would promise myself with every single cell in my body that I was not going to pick up again when I got back from the competition. And every single time I couldn't keep that promise. And, you know, every time I did that, it just tore my self-esteem in half again and again and again because I thought I was, like, real, a really strong person. But and So why couldn't I commit to something that I was had so committed, had promised myself, you know? Why do you think that was that, that you would make this promise and come back and not keep it? <clears throat> um, just because I couldn't handle life on life's terms. I couldn't handle my own thinking. I couldn't handle the way I felt about myself. I couldn't handle my living circumstances. I couldn't handle, I just couldn't handle a lot of stuff. Um, and I felt very badly about myself and, um, I I felt like a piece of shit basically. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was, you know, like I, after I got my number one world ranking, I, um, I actually had to take three months off. Um, I was forced to three months of bed rest to let some stress fractures in my spine heal. Uh, and that's, you know, that's when it, it, it that's when it was its worst, um, uh, because I didn't have, um, sort of obligations to sort of moderate my use a bit. Um, because I was kind of using drugs in the way that I would sort of drink coffee. Like, you know, I would peter it out. Um, and, which is a very unusual, I guess, for, um, for a drug like ice, because, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, people normally just smash it and don't sleep for days on end. And, um, and then they go into psychosis, but I was sleeping every night and, you know, I was eating regularly and, um, uh, and I, basically I was using it like medicine, mm. like medication. Um, and, and that's why, you know, I was able to sustain it for such a long amount of time and, but I guess I was also able to sustain it for such a long amount of time because the shame and the addiction, um, which, you know, in it, which it in, innately just wants to perpetuate itself. And so it makes you go to extreme lengths to, to hide it, you know, to make sure, to, to make sure that it keeps on, um, you know, being fueled mm. to make sure you keep on feeding it. Um, and what even, you know, it even, it exacerbates that thinking, I guess, you know, the, that, um, self, 
self-deprecating um, uh, mentality. Um, and, you know, there isn't really much to be proud of being a drug addict anyway. So, you know, that all feeds into the addiction as well. And so, you know, it's like you already feel bad about yourself. So what do you do? You take something to change the way you feel. Um, and it does momentarily, but then you come down and you feel worse. So you then use drugs again to change yeah. the way you feel and then you come down and feel worse. And every time you do that, it perpetuates and reinforces that cycle um, until you don't have a choice anymore. And, um, and you know, when, it, it, when after that three months of bed rest and, um, and, you know, like I was trying to get ready for the London Olympics, I was realizing that I just could, I couldn't stop anymore. I, I had no choice anymore. And, um, you know, I finally had to, cause I'd been trying to stop for about six months by that stage and mm. failing all the time. And, um, and I had to finally just swallow my, what little pride I had left and, um, and reach out for help. And I went to rehab and that was the best choice I ever made because, you know, that's when I learned that the, the drugging was a symptom of the depression rather than the cause of it. Um, that's when I learned that I had such poor self-esteem and, you know, and I, I learned about what self-esteem is and how to generate self-esteem. And so, you know, it, it I guess I realized that, um, you know, it uh, that I had become so entirely dependent on external sources of esteem. Um, so, you know, uh, basically like m- my achievements, like I, 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 all of my self-worth was, wrapped up in my achievements. Um, and it's no surprise that, you know, I made a career out of a sport where you get feedback about yourself in the form of numbers. So if I got an eight, they thought I was good. If I got a nine, they thought I was great. And if I got a 10, they thought I was perfect. And, you know, even during training sessions, I would get this feedback that was, you know, very esteeming, you know, like that was beautiful, but it was all about like what I was doing, not who I was being. Uh, And when that was all taken, when that was all taken away from me, um, that's, you know, that's when my addiction just went crazy. Hmm. Yeah. I love that, you know, what I was doing, not who I was being and, and you beautifully just almost, um, accidentally, I guess in the last 20 minutes really colored in that answer around like, was it worth it? Because it sounds like when you got what you wanted, which was external validation, it just shifted. It's like whack-a-mole. It then became, well, mm. oh, now I need to be the number one in the world, not the, and now people only love me for the medal. And so I guess what happened when you finally, what I would call broke, and I think break is a really good thing for those that need it because you need to hit rock bottom in order to rebuild, and that's something I've been through. Um, you finally were forced to go inside out instead of outside in. And so you weren't searching for the mole anymore. It's like you're growing your own harvest internally that's far more sustainable. And it sounds like you've been on that journey ever since, which I'm really proud of you for. And and I'm honored to be sharing this story with you. Mm, Thanks. Yeah, I've done a lot of reflection over the years. And, um, you know, I tell my story a lot. and, um, And that's one of the ways that I have learned about how to esteem myself from within. Um, you know, because I've learned that the, the most efficient and effective way to do it is to be of service to others. Uh, and especially, you know, if you can manage it, being of service to others without expecting anything in return is like the golden ticket. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's why, you know, like I, 
I shared my story. I wrote a book about it, uh, about my story, and then which was then turned into a cabaret show. And um, and people would share, I guess, because you know, because I, I have shared so openly. Um, and and you know, I, would, I shared this stuff on stage. And there's a point in the show where I sort of I pretend because I'm such a great actress. Um, <laughs> I pretend to cry, and, um, and and it does look very genuine and authentic. And I guess because I am so raw and vulnerable on stage, um, afterwards, like I do meet and greets with people and so many times people have shared things with me that they've never felt comfortable enough to share with other people. One, because I think because I've started the conversation and two, because I have gotten to a place of such rawness and vulnerability, they don't feel like there's that power imbalance where you know, if you're feeling weak or broken or defective in some way, you don't then want to share that with somebody who's, you know, healthy and <laughs> got all their shit together um, <laughs> because then you don't want to feel judged or you don't want to feel less than. But, you know, if somebody's already, you know, down at that level, then you can share without fear of feeling less than. Um, so that's a very, very powerful experience for me. Um, and that's why, like, I am so passionate about sharing my story um, because, you know, I feel like it helps people. And also it reminds me of where I've been and, you know, and, and what I've done and what I'm um, susceptible to. Um, you know, I feel like I'm always going to have a predisposition and a susceptibility to for escapism and mm-hmm. to want to change the way I feel unless I actually put in the healthy um, work, like the work that um, stops me from getting that far, Um unless I actually put in the work to, you know, to make those better choices um, all the time. And shout out to your book, Twists and Turns uh, by Matthew Mitchum. <laughs> Definitely pick it up. Um, do you think that that choice is a choice to feel instead of run? Uh, no, not always, um, because often I get so overwhelmed that I like to go and have a nap. Um, <laughs> just to escape the world a little bit. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's not exactly a choice to feel, um, but it's a healthier choice than to put a substance in my body. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it, it's a process. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not cured uh, entirely yet, but I'm certainly much better than I used to be. Um, and I do see the benefit of actually, like, going through the feeling I've been coming out the other side of it, um, especially fear, which is one that is almost a daily struggle for me. Um, but, you know, I've, I see so, so often time and time and time and time and time again, the benefit of, uh, of working through the fear, um, the, 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 the gift that's on the other side of it. Um, and so it's just, you know, kind of often I need, often I need help with that. Um, my husband is great at yanking me through the fear, kicking and screaming, um, <laughs> um, and I'm very grateful for that too. Um, so, yeah, yeah uh, it's sometimes sometimes you need a bit of help. Absolutely. Every time in my uh, my experience is uh, addiction seems to be one of those areas of mental health, or let's just call it life, that has had such great progress when it comes to treatment programs. And I know people who are just struggling in life in general, like I know so many people that recommend AA meetings, for example, to people that have no issues with alcohol because the addiction space 
has just got their shit together when it comes to healing, introspection, as you mm. say, all that stuff. Did you, do you think that rehab, it sounds like that was really the inflection and turning point for you. Um, do you think that the, the biggest benefit of that was the guided introspection and sense making and practice building, or was it the community of people that you were around who were going through the same thing? Probably both. Um, I definitely agree with the, um, you know, with the AA sort of having their shit together around, uh, you know, that, that, um, things beyond just the behavior of, um, drinking and drugging, um, because that's always the drinking and the drugging is always a symptom of something. Um, and so, and that's what I learned sort of at rehab and, and, you know, the rehab I went to, it wasn't just for drug addicts and alcoholics. Like it was for people, you know, with bipolar or with depression or with, um, eating disorders, um, you know, which, you know, the eating disorder, like the, these, these process disorders, uh, these process addictions, um, or substance addictions, they kind of all have this underlying, like these, these, um, core issues, like these underlying core value issues, um, that then result in that behavior. I don't know how other rehabs work, but, um, but this one was very much a, a one that, uh, focused on, you know, on these core values. Um, and if, you know, if you've got extremes in, you know, one way or the other, um, then, you know, they tend to uh, have a negative effect on you, on your life, and how you actually then, like how that manifests in your life as well. Um, so that, yeah, the rehab was great to have that guided introspection and to learn about, um, you know, disorders and dysfunctional behavior and where it comes from and how it manifests and, you know, where it might have come from in childhood and trying to heal that, you know, inner child stuff. It all sounds a bit hippy-dippy. Um, but, you know, even just having all of that information was really good. Um, and to, uh, and to do it with, you know, under the guidance of somebody, but also to have a community there was really good. And, you know, like, like you said, with the, um, you know, with the, the 12 step fellowship stuff, um, that is also like, you know, I, I've decided I'm starting the steps all over again. Um, but you know, it, cause it has very, the steps have very little to do with um, drinking drugs, really. Like just the first step has to do with drinking drugs because it's about powerlessness and unmanageability. But literally every other step from that point onwards is about every other area of your life. Mm. Um, and it's kind of, you know, it's basically just, it's the same thing. It's like kind of very guided questions. Like you just answer hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions that force you to reflect and think about it. And so in one way, I think the reason why it works is that it is uh, kind of like, you know, CBT in a way, like it forces you to think, it forces you to change the way you think, it forces you to have a look at your underlying issues, it forces you to look at these patterns of behavior that manifest in your life, it forces you to, you know, make amends and, and sort of clear the wreckage from your past, it forces you to be open to accepting help from others, um, it forces you to putting continued work and reflection on a daily basis. Um, it for it's forced. sounds like, you know, I mean, it, you're not forced at all. It's all entirely your choice, but you know, the more you do, the more effective it is. Um, but it's really just, it, I believe the 12 steps is about retraining your thinking. 
um, and your beliefs and your values and, um, and and learning about yourself and so then putting in preventative measures um, around all of these patterns of behaviour that come up again and again and again um, mm. so that you can sort of rebuild your life uh, from scratch and, and, you know, and start making healthier choices in your life. Yeah. Um, yeah, almost like we rewiring stories, which is why stories are so important. And to mm. jump on your last point around, you know, on a daily basis, can you tell me what are three things you do on a daily basis now to maintain your mental health? Um, <clears throat> starting the day with a gratitude list. Um, so, you know, writing three things for me that, uh, I'm grateful for, even if they're really basic things like, you know, if you, if it's very, if it's a particularly difficult to be grateful one day, like even just, you know, that the sun is shining or that I have food or, you know, that, um, you know, I've got a jacket, uh, to keep me sort of warm. Um, I've even heard one person say that they <laughs> were grateful that they weren't on fire, <laughs> Um, because, you know, cause they were like having a really bad day. Um, but at least it just forces you to, you know, it's, uh, it forces you to think that like, even if, even if the shit completely hits the fan that day and you feel like you've got nothing to live for, you know, at least, you know, even that morning you've thought of three things that you are grateful for. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's, I mean, if you do get into that stage where you feel like there is nothing, then you've at least got three things that you can carry with you in your little backpack. Um, but it also, I think it's preventative as well because, you know, it puts you in that in that grateful frame of mind starting the day mm-hmm. off like that. Um, uh, I, used to, I used to struggle even just doing that practice um, and so I had to modify it a bit and... Um, and do little calligraphy artworks, like make little artworks out of them. And I found that incredibly meditative um, as well. So, you know, that, that was a double whammy there, um, you know, taking 15 minutes out of the morning to do this, you know, creative meditative practice, creating something beautiful that never existed before was a nice little esteem boost. Um, and then having these three things that I could carry with me throughout the day Um Another thing that I do on a daily basis is just is trying to connect with someone, um, usually particularly someone in recovery, um, whether that be, you know, uh, my sponsor or someone, you know, older and wiser than myself or, um, you know, something that's you know, connecting with a newcomer, somebody who's very early in their journey um, because, you know, it's important to, to be of service to, you know, this community that, um, that gave me freely, you know, when I was in early recovery and I was struggling, people helped me out with expect, with no expectation of anything in return. Um, and so, you know, it's a, an important part to give that back as well. Awesome. And is, is exercise and sport still a part of your daily? <laughs> I'm pretty lazy. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, you've done enough for one I'm, lifetime. Yeah. Well, that doesn't stop you from getting fat though, does it? <laughs> No, you look great. Um, uh, thank you. Um, it's, you know, uh, I go through waves and periods where you thought like I am being um, active and physical on a daily basis and that's when I'm feeling my best. Yeah. Um, but then I also go through waves of, you know, of lacking a bit of motivation. Um, uh, and But, you know, my husband and I help each other out with that motivation um, and, uh, and so it's, yeah, it's really good to have someone sort of on board 
to, you know, when you're lacking a bit of motivation, hopefully, you know, they, they can be enough motivation for the both of you and vice versa. You know, if they're lacking a bit of motivation, then I'm the one that kind of, you know, yeah. yanks us out of bed in the morning. Um, and, you know, worst case scenario, if we're both lacking motivation, um, then uh, I think, you know, we can try and put in a, a third layer of fail safes, um, which I did. Uh, we had a, a, like a burpee challenge that we were doing with, um, you know, our old gym back in the UK where, you know, you do as many burpees as you can do in one minute on day one and then two minutes on day two and three minutes on day three. And I never wanted to do it. And um, and so I would always wait until like 10 o'clock at night. And usually, you know, my husband was really good at, at going, come on, like you, you got to do it. Um, and on the odd occasion that even he wasn't enough to motivate me to do it, I started getting these WhatsApp messages from people back in England who were doing their burpee challenge because it was morning for them. And so I was like, oh, okay, there's my accountability. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I always say, um, you know, when it comes to goal setting, you know, build in these layers of fail safes. Um, if you can sort of preempt what your obstacle is going to be, even if it's your own motivation, then, you know, preempt what that's going to be and put in preventative measures to circumnavigate that. Awesome. And if you had a, a large cardboard cutout and a permanent marker and you were standing on the side of the road and people were driving by and you knew that some of them weren't feeling good, what would be the one message you would put on that cardboard cutout? Oh, that's so... Um, that's... Oh my God, that's such a good question. Um, <laughs> We're not editing this silence oh. out because I love the introspection. Oh, oh. <laughs> I, I, want, I want people to know okay. how serious you're taking this. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm like super serious. Um, <laughs> I would write, um, I love you and think of puppies. Love it. Puppies in love. What's, what's not to be solved? What is no, not to everything be Everything can be solved with love and puppies. Um, that is pretty and true. And I'm not going to discriminate against, you know, um, feline uh, offspring because they no, also we, are very cute. We would never. Cats are awesome, just as awesome. It's basically just bird offspring that are not that super cute because they're all like, dinosaur and spiky and you know before they get the, i mean when they get their feathers Fabulous. they're adorable but before that they are just like the ugliest they are, <laughs> they are. Uh, yeah only sorry, a birds. face a mother good love sorry birds um yeah. mate i know we're we're pretty much at time uh i think there's a lot of people in here that that could relate to a lot of the things that you said and uh for someone to have a public profile and be so open as you are um is a real gift i think we need more people leading by example and you continue to do that and i'm glad that it's serving you in on your continued journey as well um uh one more uh spirally question for you <laughs> uh what's the best advice you think you've been told by someone in the last three to five years Oh God! Um, That's the last one, I promise. Um, three to five years. Three to five years. Um, to honor myself. Yeah, to honor myself and my feelings. Can we put that at the bottom of the cardboard cutout? Yeah. All right. Yourself. Deal. Yeah. Because uh, you know, I think if I was to paraphrase, 
in uh, you know in, in, in a trope or in, sorry in a uh, like a cliche, it would probably be you know RuPaul's if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love anybody else? And so you know, especially for someone like me who has a tendency towards low self esteem um, and low self worth, um, I you know have a tendency to. Uh, to abandon myself sometimes and to put others' needs before my own um, because, you know, I want them to like me or whatever. Um, but the overall outcome of that is going to not be that great because, you know, it has a uh, – it puts me in a position where I might end up being resentful and the only person that suffers from resentments is myself. Like the person mm-hmm. I'm resentful about, then they're, they're not hurting from <laughs> from my resentment. Only I am. And so, um, you know, I just I need to to not abandon to honor myself and my feelings. Yeah. Uh, and that way, I can bring my whole self to every interaction that I have from that point forward within a safe container of boundaries. <laughs> which are still being practiced <laughs> yes uh, every day well today you've done a good deed my friend so Matthew thank you for joining us thanks for having me